Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the show, the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. Today's guest is Nell Schofield. She's an Australian actor, author and activist, even though she hasn't acted for some time. She's done a bit more authoring and activizing, activizing, activision, activism <laughs> in the last few hours. You can find Nell Schofield on Twitter Nellavision, N-E-L-L-E-V-I-S-I-O-N. She's a lovely lady. And you can also find out about what she's currently working on at Solar Citizens, which is one word on Twitter. More about Nell in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by the fantastic human beings who are listening right now who support it on Patreon. Thank you oh so much. Thank you so, so much for supporting the show. Without you, Quite simply, I could not bring this show every week. If I didn't have your support, this show would have stopped by now. But because you have pledged money every month to help me make this show, I can keep bringing you this show. Uh, As little as five bucks a month can get you access to exclusive episodes, most recently with the extraordinary Cindy Gallup. She and I had a fantastic conversation, a part two to our first conversation that we had uh, in her apartment in New York City. It's a brilliant, brilliant chat. And uh, if you pledge as little as five bucks a month, you get access to those episodes. There's other episodes there with James Matheson and uh, where he talks about running for Tony Abbott's seat. Also, Ash London and a few others are in there. Uh, Charlie Clawson's in there as well. Um, and more more to come, many more to come. But you don't have to pledge anything. If you can't afford it, please don't. But for pretty much the price of one fancy coffee a month, you can help this show uh, go to air because these things are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. If I didn't have Andy, uh, it usually takes me an entire day to put this show together and I just don't have an entire day anymore. So thank you. Please, if you're listening and you've pledged, be grateful. 
I know that I'm grateful, I should say. Please know that I am grateful for you that I can uh, bring you this show every week. Uh, as you know, I have been um, in an interesting uh, time this week uh, with uh, med transitions. Things are slowly, slowly kicking in with the new meds, ever so, ever so slowly. Um, but I did have to have a bit of a long, hard look at myself the other day um, cause, uh, as you know, I spoke about last week about being quite afraid of, of taking Valiums because of my history with such a pharmaceutical and that, uh, Prince Valium and I might've had a questionable relationship in the past. However, uh, we're strictly formal these days, me and him. And I was trying to avoid, I was trying to avoid taking them and, um, then thankfully I have Audrey in my life who's like, why are you such a cranky motherfucker? What the fuck is wrong with you? And if I don't feel cranky, yet someone's telling me I'm cranky, that is pretty weird, but at least I know that, ah, something's not right. Something's not right. So I, I had to talk to my doctor and I said, this is happening. He goes, mate, just, just fucking take him. Just don't worry. You're going to be okay. Just take him. So, um, I'm kind of, yeah, following the prescription and things are kind of okay. Uh, which, again, you know, for folks who don't um, uh, live with a brain that is different, you kind of, and I'm, but I'm, sure, I'm sure I don't speak for everyone, but I can only really speak for me. But I'm, I've, people email me all the time at sendoshiremail at gmail.com. They email and say, oh, yeah, I get that. You like to think that you can handle it. You like to think, oh no, I've got this. You like to think, no, I'm smart enough. I can, I can figure this out. But what you don't think is that you're trying to think your way around shitty thinking using shitty thinking. It's like trying to bite your own teeth using your own teeth. You can't, <laughs> even though you like to think you can. You can't, and it sucks. It sucks having to admit, ah, fuck, I can't do this by myself this thing's bigger than me but then it's also when you finally do go ah this thing's bigger than me thank goodness i've got people around me to help who can help me help myself and then when it starts working you go oh thank goodness but at the time it's it's difficult to think your way out of it it's difficult to rationalize that you actually need to do all the things that people tell you to do including uh take meds that you like to think you don't need. And I know that makes no sense. You know, if you've got a hell of a headache, chances are you're going to pop a Panadol rather than grit your teeth and tough it out, right? But there's something about having to take pills every day just so you can not yell at people that you love that you think, fuck, do I really have to? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but that's okay because... You know, these are people that I love and I don't want to yell at them. And I can't figure out at the moment, not saying it'll never happen, but I can't figure out at the moment how not to do it without the help of those meds to loosen up those switches in my brain that are stuck on just be cranky. When the meds on board, those switches can flick from cranky on to cranky off and I'm able to help them that's when the rationalization starts to work. When I go, should I be cranky? No, I shouldn't be cranky. And all the switches flick back off again. But when I don't have the meds on board, they're stuck on and I don't realize it. Does that make sense? I hope it does. 
Anyway. So that's what's going on. Um, what else happened? This is just like, this is really turned into, let's just whinge about my health. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, we had a dog trainer come around to the house this week. That was fun. Now, it's not a dog trainer. It's a people trainer, just so you know. It's an interesting cat. He came around and he helped us out with Frank, who's being, uh, he's, 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 you know, just testing the, testing the boundaries, young Frank. Um, but little Gigi, she was bored and started, she's walked away after 45 minutes because she's like, I know all this shit. This, I taught the dog, the dog knows exactly what I want it to do and the dog does what I do when I tell it to do. But turns out I'm the one that needed the training. And that was cool. Um, so me and Frank, we're just uh, figuring out the new boundaries around our relationship, but uh, it's going to be all right. He's a good lad. He's a good lad to have around the house. It's nice. It's nice to, you know, give and receive unconditional love um, via a pet. And he was telling me, real interesting, he said um, that dogs are one of the four mammals on earth that can read human body language and the other three are primates. Um, because we evolved at the same time as, as dogs, um, which makes sense, really. Uh, Glenn Richards, Dr. Glenn Richards, who's coming on the show shortly, is the vet who created Green Cross and um, Pet Barn. Uh, he says in the show that I'm going to bring you soon, he says that health outcomes for people with pets are always, always off the charts compared to those who don't have pets because of just the, the good feeling chemicals that get released in your body when you have a pet around, even a fish. Even a goldfish. I am being looked upon by Captain Speedy, the goldfish, right now. And he's just giving me those goldfish eyes. You know the eyes. You right there, Captain Speedy? He likes to sit underneath the little weeds, well, weeds, reeds, at the bottom of his tank and just, just pretend that he's not breathing. But then you have to watch him for a while and you watch the gills move and you go, oh, thank fuck, I haven't killed the fish for another day. Winner. Winner, winner, winner. Um, we are heading into an election in Australia. In fact, uh, this time next week, we'll be going to the polls. So if you listen to the show, you probably have a fair idea about where I stand, okay? Um, I kind of stand kind of in the center and I lean a little bit left, all right? There's some things I'm centrist about, some things I'm left about. Um, sometimes I lean a little more left, but mostly I've got, you know, one foot either side of the line most of the time. However... Because the right wing, in this country at least, in Australia, is so far right, it makes me look like a pinko commie freak. But I'm not, really. It's just that the general right wing dialogue in Australia is so far right that it makes anyone who has a, I don't know, sense of reason and an ability to identify the nuances of an argument and even, goodness knows, change their mind about something look like a freaking weirdo hippie, but that's not the case at all. So because we're going into an election, I did want to have a slightly election-themed episode. Um, I will tell you that if you are in the seat of Warringah in New South Wales, vote one, James Matheson. Just do it. The only way to change the <laughs> kind of ingrained, hardened, rusted-on party system politics of party politicians who've only ever been in the same party since they were teenagers and don't know life outside of the party is to vote for an independent. So vote independent where you can, in my opinion. Vote for an independent that aligns with your values. Do your research, do your homework. It'll take 10 minutes. Um, I believe the ABC's vote compass is quite interesting. 
Um, that works out nicely. Uh, but a big one that I would say, a big election issue, I would say is, you know, future. Just think of the fucking future, all right? Look at the um, British exit vote, which just happened, okay? If you look at six, something like 68% of uh, all people that voted, yes, let's leave, were over 55, all right? They've got, what, 20 years to live with the decision? 75% of people 18 to 24 voted no let's stay because they've got like 60 years to live with the decision so think about rather than vote for yourself rather than vote for the short term vote for your children vote for your grandchildren vote for your unborn children vote for your little brother or sister what would make them have a safer life have a, just think about that yeah it's okay to vote for yourself that's all right but have a consider what it might be like for those younger than you and consider that your vote most definitely 100% affects their lives as we go forward. Shit's changed for me since Gigi came into my life. She's 12. And all I can think of is you're going to hit a job market in six years from now that is automated, outsourced, offshore. What the fuck? How are you going to even have a career? What are we, what are we going to do with you? Are we even going to have a planet for you? Does this beachside suburb where we live, will it exist or will it just be a rocky outcrop? Just have a look at what happened in Collaroy the other week in New South Wales. Interesting that the fancy uh, fancy climate change denying suburbs are the ones that get washed away. So as you know, for me, climate change is a big issue and uh, free energy is a big issue for me. Chile is already pretty much on free energy, which is amazing. And I'm a big, big, big believer in uh, harvesting renewable energy. And we handily, very handily, have a free nuclear fission reactor in the sky. It's called the sun. And we can use it. And, in fact, we can use it individually. And, in fact, true fact, every single house can become its own power station. We can decentralize the power grid tomorrow if you wanted to. We really could. And there's so much money to be made because if you make excess power on your own roof... You can sell those carbon credits on an international market in carbon trading schemes. Yes, you can participate in what is going to be the market of the future. And this is why I have Nell Schofield on the show today. Nell Schofield is an advocate for solar citizens, which is a, a real interesting, uh, real interesting organization. They are looking to make Australia 100% renewable by 2030. Um, they have a couple of, you know, pretty, uh, pretty good, in my opinion, are things that I align with personally, uh, ideas, um, putting uh, big solar and renewable energy in the right places around the country, considering we've got shitloads of sun in Australia, might work all right. Um, putting a fair price on solar that you generate, why should uh, an energy plant that's burning coal make more money when they sell one kilowatt versus you selling one kilowatt. At the moment, if you sell one kilowatt back into the grid, you only you own about 20% of what the big energy company gets for it. It should be the same price as far as I'm concerned. Um, but not everyone can afford that on their roof. So the guys at Solar Citizens are interested in creating um, you know, a community-owned roof space. Like You may not be able to afford to put one on your roof, but the community can use your roof space and you can participate in the finance of that. And also, uh, you know, Nell and I talk about the fact that the coal industry here in Australia has a $7.7 billion a year subsidy. I mean, fuck me. Really? Do they need our money? 
Oh, we talk about this on the show a bit, but there's a, a machine in uh, Western Australia that one of the cameramen I work with told me about. It's a, it's a, it's a coal machine and it uh, sorts out the rock from the coal and the bloke that showed them through it says, we call this the moneymaker, $112,000 an hour. Think about that. That machine makes $112,000 an hour. An hour. And they need $7.7 billion. Yeah. There's BC the same amount of jobs. They'll just be working somewhere else. Anyway, that's my two cents. If you're going to vote this year, do vote in Australia because it's illegal if you don't. But do vote and do vote for your children. Vote for your children's children. Don't vote for you because really, we've had enough. <laughs> we've had a pretty good vibe. Things are going pretty good for us. Um, Nell Schofield is an incredible human being. She shot to fame in Australia at the age of 17 uh, and in the cast of the landmark Australian film Puberty Blues, which has now recently been remade into a uh, mini uh, television series. But Puberty Blues was absolutely huge. It, it spoke at the time about the unspoken sexuality of teenagers in Australia. And I remember when we were kids running around quoting Puberty Blues left and right. Nell was pretty much cast because she was who she was. She was a teenager. She was living the life depicted in the film, uh, depicted in the book, Puberty Blues, that they were going to put into the film. And she could surf. Man, could she surf. And she talks a lot about surfing uh, as we start this show, which I'm very, very happy about. Nell is a wonderful human being. I am so grateful she came over. She had the most spectacular pair of cowboy boots on when she walked in. Um, uh, thankfully, they were easy to take off because we're a no-shoe house. Uh, but she was very, very sweet. She's an absolute dream to talk to. And um, I've really got to thank her very much for talking about sexuality in this show. Um, but I'll let her describe that to you more. Thanks for the letting you rant. This is a longer rant than usual, but it is an election coming up. And, you know, just... And shit, look, if you want to be, you know, National Party, Liberal Party voting, good for you. Because if that's what you believe 100% is the best thing for your children, fuck you, go right ahead. But you just make sure, make sure you understand what's fair and what's right for all humans, all right? What's right for all people, white, brown, you name it, men, women, women particularly. What's the, what's the right, right, right thing, all right? That's all I've got to say. Sorry about the super political, super mental healthy, extra long dog involving rant. Um, let's get straight to the chat which uh, I'm very happy to bring you with the wonderful Nell Schofield. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Glad you can be here. Thanks for uh, coming around. It's a pleasure. Back to my old stomping ground, really. So I was, so I was reading. You grew up here. Well, I started surfing here when I was 13, so that was quite a many decade ago. <laughs> You're not that much older than me. Come on. Well, just a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I lived around the corner here and, um, yeah. What was the scene like then? Because I've got – there's actually a photo of me. It's like the only photo in existence so far of me with a six-pack. I was eight and I, my parents would come down here. We, uh, my dad had a friend that lived on the promenade and I body surfed every day for about a month. And I was eight years old. That's all I did was body surf because you, you could not get me out of the water. It's so addictive, isn't oh, it? it was the best. But I – I remember Bondi being a very, very different place. That was 82. It was a very different place back then. Well, let me take you back to the 70s, <laughs> mid-70s. Um, 
I definitely was one of about three females in the ocean. There weren't very many at all. Um, I mean, there's still only about 10% of females in the water surfing, um, but it's a lot more than it was then, which mm. is probably about, you know, 0.3%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, it, was, it was really crusty, actually. It was, um, you know, we used to store our boards in old garages and old laundromats and it certainly wasn't the glamorous hood that it is now. Mm. It was very, um, very low rent. <laughs> they used to sort of call it, um, you know, Slum Valley, I think. Mm. Slum Valley and the ghetto and it was full of rough types, heaps of Kiwis. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of housing commission still. Uh, yeah. There is still housing commission here, but it's not quite what it was then. If I recall, the surf break was very different because that storm drain was still quite active back then in the south corner. So there was yeah. a sandbank there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was um, the south break was very nice, very yeah. nice indeed. <laughs> and I remember, you know, just being such a grommet, you know, I'd come before school and I'd come after school and I would just froth all year round. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I've got a few scars to show for those days. I remember getting a massive fin chop in my knee and requiring about 11 stitches. So, um, but, you know, it didn't stop me. Back out I went. What did it teach you about, I mean, I can only imagine now. I mean, that surfboard is Gigi's. Gigi's 12. And uh-huh. She got that for Christmas. Um, so you were, you were in a kid, all right, and you were out amongst not just men but Pretty ruthless, horrible, stinky seventies women of second class citizens. If that men, yeah. What did that teach you about the world? It just taught me to be super strong. Yeah. You know, it really just taught me to um, not take any of that crap. So I just because uh, I'd been brought up sort of thinking that I could do anything, that there wasn't, you know, any um, gender issues. I remember marching with Jermaine Greer in a women's liberation march when we were about 10 because my one of my best friends, Jermaine, was her godmother. So we were out there, you know, calling for women's equality, age 10, and I just never thought that there was anything I couldn't do if I didn't, you know, if I, if I wanted to do something, I could definitely do it. But, yeah, in the water it was pretty tough. The guys would always be very super cruel. <laughs> there was a little posse that were lovely. Um, there were gangs, definitely gangs. There was the rock crew and there was the um, – I remember, you know, a lot of, lot of famous surfers like Greg Weber um, and Shapers. The whole Weber family were surfing and they were all sort of pals, boyfriends at some point until, you know, such point as I – quickly step back from all that masculinity. <laughs> um, who we'll else was that. out there? Richard Cram, yeah, all the boys. You know, so there were some amazing surfers, yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing kind of um, top-class surfers. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to get out amongst it. I didn't mm. want to sit on the beach, that's for sure. Was there anybody in your family that surfed or you just...? No. No? No, no. It was... I mean, I remember as well being a kid coming down, my dad taking me down and swimming out the back and, you know, to having that thrill of the surf. But there was not that surf culture. We lived up the hill um, at Wallara. Firstly, we lived at Double Bay. Then we went over to Birch Grove and then we sort of settled in Wallara when I was about seven and I went to Wallara Dem. Right. 
funnily enough, the other day, yesterday I was in Tamworth and I met this guy I went to Willara Dem with. He runs the Tamworth Hotel, Roger <laughs> Rumble. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's funny. The funny the people you meet from wow. those olden days. Yeah. I, well, I, de- I definitely remember the, like, even now, as a, someone who learned to surf in my late 20s, and then I chose, I chose longboards. Um, not only because they were easier to paddle, but because there was just it was a different wave that you surfed. You ca- you caught the wave at a different point from all that alpha aggro bullshit that I just couldn't. I did not want to be around. Yeah. It just would ruin my day. The sun's yeah. coming up. The dolphins. Yeah, it's freaking beautiful. <laughs> and someone's yelling at someone else. It's more fucking wave. Can't get the fuck off my fucking wave. Don't you know the rules? Yeah. Hey, it's fucking six in the morning. Haven't had a cup of coffee yet. <laughs> Chill out. Just relax. I know. It can get very, very aggro. Um, and I think that's why I kind of gave up surfing for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I, I went overseas. Um, I came back um, and I might have had a few too many pan au chocolat. I don't know. But I was a little chunky, a little um, pale. And the guys just gave me such a bad time, you know. They were going, oh, one shade wider than the sand and, oh, look at you and all that kind of crap. And I thought, actually, I really don't need this in my life. So yeah. I gave up surfing for a long time and then then someone asked me to write a little book about puberty blues. So I thought, oh, I'll just go back to the old places that I used to go when I was a teenager because I used to just hitchhike up the coast and, you know, pitch a tent at Iluka in the sand dunes and stay there for weeks and surf with no one, you know, just, as he said, dolphins. And so I thought I'll go back there and just revisit. As a teenager? Yeah, well, I was a little bit rebellious, right? So I just went and said, I'm going, there's nothing you can do. So and mum was like, as long, can you just ring me? Can 15, 16? Yeah, 14, 15. Yeah. Fifteen-year-old girl hitchhiking by herself. (laughs) Oh, no, I did have a boyfriend at that stage, Uh, a fellow Bondi surfer uh who um, was a little bit older than me. So, But, yeah, it was pretty radical. I mean, things at home were a bit rough, so I kind of rebelled against all that stuff. What did your folks do? uh, About what, just No, 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 for like for cash. For cash. Dad was an ad man. He had his own advertising agency. And mum... Sold antique jewellery, as she still does in wow. Queen Street, Willara, just a few doors down from are where these we live. mum pieces in the ears? No, these are actually op shop things that I picked up, but I do have a few nice pieces. Fantastic. Mm. So, I mean, are very, uh, two very creative people yeah. that you're living with. That's right. I mean, he was, they met at university and they were in that gang where they were um, doing plays with the Sydney University Society, uh, the Dramatic Society. Um, Leo, my father, was directing, mum was acting and that's the rest was history. It happens. <laughs> it it happens. happens. It's the bond of the theatre. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the thespians treading the, b- the boards. Oh, there's something about it though, isn't there? There's something about, you know, after the show you're all in that buzz and you're like, well, it's 11pm on a Thursday. What are we going to do? <laughs> Make <know>? babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, you know, more talking about, you know, we'll, just, we'll go hang out backstage, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that was, was that around this time of the pill? Because that's another really interesting thing. My mum always says that's the biggest thing that happened for women to, you know, emancipate them really, the the pill coming in. So your mum was, okay, so your mum's of the age where she remembers the time before it and then after it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So she's 76 now. Um, Same age as my mum. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So they should get together. <laughs> <laughs> she's up in Brizzo. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, well. But, yeah, so just getting back to going up, you know, and those surfing safaris, I didn't quite make it back up to the beautiful Iluka sand hills. But I did make it to a funny little place near Seal Rocks and we just threw down the swags in the bush and some dude, some kind of God-loving, hippie, weed-smoking guy came out of the bushes and just gave me a surfboard and I got back on the surfboard and I just could not believe why I'd been off it for so long because, you know, I just could jump up again because I'd been doing yoga and stuff so you know you jump up and your arms are still quite strong so I I was up and I was surfing with beautiful fish under the board and I I went whoa I'm 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 reborn (laughs) hallelujah (laughs) so I came back here and um, joined the Bondi Girls Surf Riders ended up as the vice president giving lots of good vice advice (laughs) (laughs) vice advice (laughs) I think I had a little column vice advice you know yeah but, um, yeah, and I met such a great bunch of women who I'm still really fond of. We were actually going on a sea hag adventure in a couple of months. Sea hags ahoy is our motto. was back then anyway. <laughs> Surfboards? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Where are you going to go? We're going to go up to Byron. We're staying at Suffolk Park, oh, Suffocating Suffolk Park. Park. <laughs> Suffolk Park is the secret. It's the secret jewel up there. It really is. You can... I mean, I've got a, I used to have a photo on my wall of the past breaking from the headland all the way to the wreck. It was this massive panorama. And on a day like that now, there'd be a thousand people out there. But you go five miles down the road to Suffolk Park and you can get this, this glorious off the back of broken head there. It's yeah. Beautiful. <gasps> beautiful. And up, yeah. in the, up in the corner, up in the shelter, you know. That corner's amazing, actually. When Tallos. you get Tallos, Sharky, but yeah, know, yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing. When you get, remember those big floods in Brisbane? Yeah. I was surfing up there just after that, and you know, big sort of huge left-handers coming through, and dolphins. Didn't see any sharks in Kevin's. <laughs> haven't, haven't really. Although I was at Maroubra the other day, and I saw a shark. You know, a, a fin, and the, and I thought, no, 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 that's not a shark. And then I saw. A, Another fin, like the tail fin. Yeah. So you past. saw two fins going. Two fins. Yeah, that's a shark. <laughs> that's yeah. a shark. And I went, oh, my God, that's a shark. So I started paddling in and I was saying to all the guys, there's a shark, there's a shark. And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. So wow. I just thought, oh, well, if they're not scared, I'll just hang just behind them <laughs> and they can get For people who've never snapped. surfed, what, what would you say to them about what's so special about surfing? Oh, well, you know, you sit there for hours, not catching any waves, meditating basically. So you just look around and maybe there's a full moon rising, maybe there's a sun setting, maybe there are dolphins torpedoing past your head as they were, you know, last Easter, which is pretty special. But it's just that feel, I guess it's that, it's probably like the amniotic fluid, is that what it is, where you're a baby and you're just bouncing around, slowly bobbing. Maybe it's got something to do with that, that you feel like you're, you're back in that, the bosom of the mother, you know? And when you are on that wave, I mean, that was the big, when I learned to surf, as I said, I was in my late 20s, so I'd, I believe the lie that the whole time you're out there, you're, doing, you're just on the wave the whole time, it's awesome. <laughs> I didn't realise that. Pretty much all of the skill set I needed to build was around getting this gigantic floaty piece of hard fibreglass that was going to hurt my face through the whitewater to get it out the back. 
that was the hardest part. And it's oh. all paddling. It's all paddling. The, the, the surfy, surfy, turny part is about eight seconds of <laughs> joy, bliss, <laughs> and that's stoke. It. <laughs> but, but but how good is that though? You're, I remember them like I remember a golf swing. Like <laughs> I remember, I can still remember certain turns that were maybe a second and a half of my life. Yes, but I just remember <laughs> the way the fin feels when it digs in, and the way the board feels, and the way the 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 the, 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 the you're on this wave moving, the horizon's shifting behind it, and. Yeah, I still remember those turns, you know. And to be honest, I also one other thing I really liked about longboarding is the chat. Yeah, the chat is great. Out the back. Yeah. Just the chat. So I've got a longboard. I've got an 8.2 and a 5.10. So, but, you know, more and more I love my longboard because it's, especially if you've got a nice point break, you can just cruise. Yeah. You can actually yeah. surf. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I was actually thinking about this. I've been uh, scuba diving heaps lately, uh, which I've only recently – I did it about, about five, six years ago and then uh, I only recently went and got my licence and I've been doing it quite a lot. And there's something about being in this, you know, on, on a reef and looking at all the different creatures, the extraordinary variety of wildlife down there. And you realise that up here on the surface – we have to have certain things. We have to have at least some sort of skeleton, whether it be internal or external, to keep us from the gravity. Every animal, every creature, unless you're a plant, has to go somewhere to get food, whether it, you know, we put ourselves somewhere and then trap it like a spider or we have to go on missions and hunt it down. The ocean is food. The entire liquid is just full of nutrients. So you can be the most basic, single-celled, absolutely all you do is take a protein, turn it into something else and it becomes your bone st- or your, your structure. Boom, coral. It's amazing. You know, things don't need spines. They don't need skeletons. They, you know, you have this incredible variety of creatures down there and it's just bananas. And it, it's sad why I want to scuba dive so much. Now, I want to get there and I want to see as much of it as I possibly can <laughs> before it goes. Well, look at the <laughs> reef, 93%. Yeah. Is bleached yeah. because of what we are pumping into the atmosphere. Yeah. Atmosphere is getting sucked up by the ocean, and it's acidifying yeah. the ocean and killing the coral. And yeah. obviously, all the creatures that depend on the coral for their habitat, yeah. are, are, you know, on a di- downward spiral too. So. Yeah, a lot of people have this idea that they think climate change, coral bleaching is like, oh, I left my nice new shirt in the sun. And therefore, that's what bleached it. But that's not what it's actually Is the case. Is that what they think? Well, I've been wondering. But you'd imagine, like, if people think sun bleach, mm. coral bleach, that this warming sun. Mm. But it's, it's as you said, it's actually the acidification. It's the carbonic acid. It's that tingly on your tongue when you drink soda water. That's the stuff that is, is doing it. Yeah, and we're pumping it out by burning fossil fuels like coal into the atmosphere um, at an incredible rate. We happen to have a free nuclear fission reactor in the sky. Oh, we love the sun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that part, which is why you first reached out to me uh, to, to have a chat about, um, about solar citizens, which I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm very, very much into. And I, I do want to talk about that. But because you have such a history of, of, of surfing and, and, you know, that you are, I know you've spoken about it as your albatross, so I don't, I don't want to <laughs> But you are a part of Australian pop culture in one very, very well-known way but in one kind of secret way. So I'll talk about the, the, the other one in the intro. I'll give everyone the big blurb about Puberty Blues before the show. Tell me what it was like going to university with Baz Luhrmann. 
Well, <laughs> Baz. <laughs> I think everyone now has his email address, um, thanks to my latest email blast. But anyway, um, Baz and I were fresh out of high school when we did our first feature film. So I did Puberty Blues and Baz did Winter of Our Dreams with Judy Davis. And we both wanted to get into NIDA and we had a friend who put us together to do our audition pieces to practice our Shakespeare on each other. So we met... Pretty much hit it off very well um, and, you know, um, practised our contemporary pieces and our Shakespearean pieces and went along to NIDA and auditioned. And they said, yes, well, you're just too young, go away and have some more life experience. So we went away and we thought, well, bugger them, we're going to form our own theatre company, we're going to put on our own plays, we're going to um, get people into teacher's voice and d- whatever, directing. and So that's exactly what we did. What are you, 19 at this yeah, point? Yeah, we're 19. Fuck, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this I mean, is a 10-year-old at March with Jermaine Gurus going, no, I don't appreciate you saying no to me. <laughs> that's right. That's not Wrong girl. <laughs> so we got sponsors. I think we got Harry Miller to do oh. the publicity for us. And we had our first opening night with our play American Days down at the Bondi Pavilion. So we put that on and it was a bit of a flop. It didn't work very well. We probably weren't as fabulous as we thought. (laughs) I don't know. We were pretty good. But um, the play, it must have been the play. Anyway, we decided to just get those teachers in, do voice training. So we set up our little company and we kept working away for that year. But at the end of the year, we auditioned again for NIDA and we both got in that year. So then... We had three years of intensive training, so voice training every day, movement training. Um, we were cast in a, such a variety of roles. It was very theatre-focused then. Very yeah. theatre-focused. We did one thing with Afters, uh, the Australian Film Radio and Television School, which I didn't, don't think was radio then. I think it was just television. Yeah. Um, we did a little studio thing, a production of Man from Muck and Up and or something like that. And I think we also did Candy, which then became the Candy. I'm sure it was the same oh. Candy that Heath Ledger was in yeah. much, much later because I remember we were all play or being filmed as Candy and, and the boys, so we were matched uh, up. Okay. But, uh, yeah, obviously it takes a long time to get feature films up from their sort of initial inception. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what we're going to talk about. So, but, uh, <laughs> so NIDA, we're talking NIDA, we're talking, what, 83, 84? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking 83, 84, 85. I think and was it like, a lot of like late night talking about, you know, check-off plays and things like that late into the evening? I think there was more sex actually. <laughs> I think yeah. I think we talk. I remember going over to my history of theatre teachers' place, and he was just talking David Bowie the entire time. It didn't lead to sex, but there was a lot of um, there was a lot of intense emotions. Let's just put it that way. Well, <laughs> I can only imagine, like having gone to music school myself, and kind of being felt like the weirdo the whole time. To suddenly show up at music school and go, oh. Oh, my people. My people. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You know the third drummer from the Commodores. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, it was a great bunch of people from all over Australia. And in our second year we had the opportunity to create a piece of theatre, you know, from scratch. So we all 
put ideas up on the wall and we put our names under the things that we liked. And there was this one little piece that Baz put up that said ballroom dancing. I think that was it. It just said ballroom dancing show. And so I put my name up. Catherine McClements put her name up. Sonia Todd put her name up. Helen Mutkins, Tony Poley, Jamie Robertson. I think that was it, eight of us uh, or seven of us. And um, that then became a little half-hour play called Strictly Ballroom, which we devised and we went and researched and we, um, you know, created characters and did improvisations to, to come up with the script. And this obviously became one of the biggest Australian films in the history of anything. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What was it like to then watch um, that play? At what point did you, did, did you see that thing that you created look like, well, this, this could be getting bigger and this might, you know, watching Baz, your friend, create this thing which then in 1992 became this colossal thing. It was crazy, you know, because when we first put it on at NIDA in the little old tote or whatever it was up there, the Fig Tree Theatre, um, it was a smash straight up, you know, because it was so hilarious and, um, and tight. It was really tight and theatrical. And then we took it to Czechoslovakia and performed it in Bratislava at the International Festival of Theatre Academy. This is still Iron Curtain time. Yeah, it's just after Chernobyl, and we went what? in behind the Iron Curtain, all of us with our tutus, do, 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 do. <laughs> and um, tried not to eat too much lettuce. <laughs> um, and it was radioactive at the time. <laughs> yeah, everything was. Um, and we put it on. It was the first time the West had ever been invited to this festival, so there were the Russians and the you know all yeah. the different Eastern Bloc countries. And there were the Australians and the English and the French. I think that was it. Three. Um... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Three foreign countries or nations... Western nations, and we put it on for them and a lot of them couldn't speak English and the place went nuts. We nearly caused the Iron Curtain to come down. In fact, <laughs> I think that it might have been the little seed yeah. that could, you know. <laughs> because, you started the Velvet Revolution right there. Yeah, because, you know, this was a play about the the individual and, you know, the, the, the Scott Hastings wanted to dance the way he wanted to dance and not the way the Federation wanted to dance. So... Um, it was about going your own way and the students at those theatre academies very much appreciated that message from us. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was quite moving actually. So we knew we had something powerful and yeah. we won the best 
I think it was the best play. They couldn't oh. not give it to us. I think it was controversial. I st- I've still got the vase at wow. home that they gave us, this beautiful Czechoslovakian painted vase. Mm. For the My vase. dad's Czech. I, oh, know, really? Yeah, he escaped in 68 when the Russians came in. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I went back there with him pretty much 30 years to the week. Yeah, we went back there in 98 together. Amazing. Yeah, full on. It's the, a hell of a country. The thing I couldn't believe is that it was so great. You know, there was no, there was no advertising. No. There was no sort of stimulation, no, no buy this product, buy that product, yeah. look at this Isn't sexy it interesting? Lady. Isn't it interesting that yeah. and, and you notice it when you if, you, if you ever drive out of, uh, well, I noticed it definitely when I was in Los Angeles. I lived there for a long time and I would drive back in from Palm Springs and you'd start seeing the billboards. And then before you know it, it's just billboards and LED signs and stickers and logos and just flying at your face, all this messaging. But I think I got there a few years after the Iron Curtain had come down, but there's definitely no billboards or posters anywhere. Mm. And yet everything's grey. Grey. Just (laughs) grey. It's pretty (laughs) institutionalised. Pretty grim. Yeah. But then all those incredible big like freezers of just, you know, Stalin's in the middle and the workers on one side and the farmers on the other and the unbelievable metro stations. And, <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. That sort of brutalist architecture. Yeah, well, I do kind of like that. It's kind of cool. I do kind of like yeah. that, to be honest. And yet, you know, then this 11th century cathedral because mm. it was the only one that didn't get destroyed completely in World War II. It didn't get the shit bombed out of it. Mm. Yeah, it's a wild place, you know. Um, I'd love to go back. Let's get back with that one one day. Um, so you just you talked earlier, and if it's if it's okay, I yeah. would I would like to talk about it because a, a conversation on this show um, and a conversation I like to have on radio. I'm doing a radio show up in Brisbane quite a bit, and um, and certainly in recent uh, in recent weeks with the horror that happened over in the states, just um, just the conversation about the fluidity of sexuality, about mm. you know, not everybody gets lucky enough to go. Oh, this for me. Or that for me, and you know I'm happy to say that yeah, I patched a couple of blokes, but then I was like, nah, nah. no, it was, <laughs> was enough to go. Yeah, no, nah, actually, I thought there was something there. No, nah, no, nah, no, nah, thanks. Love Downton Abbey. Love musical theatre. Can't get enough <laughs> ballet. Straight. <laughs> and that's okay, you know, because yeah. I feel completely comfortable in that. And, yeah. And you know, I remember, you know, whenever I talk to people about it. You know, I was actually once with a I was once with a girl who um, uh, we had a fling, quite a torrid affair. She had girlfriends before she had boyfriends, and then she had a, a girlfriend after me, and then she had another boyfriend. And from what I remember, for the next five years, she was still in turmoil. And this is a girl in her late twenties, and she still didn't quite know. Well, you know? it might not be turmoil. It might just be. Um, like you say, fluidity. I yeah. have had boyfriends and girlfriends and I kind of see myself as queer, mm. you know, as opposed to straight. Um, and I have, you know, and I just find that it's about the person, you mm. know. It's about an individual. It's about a connection with an individual and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like, oh, my God, you've got boobs. I love it. Or you've got a penis. I love that. It's more about the person, you know. I'm attracted to you. Um, and I want to hang out with you and have sex. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so yeah, so I, I find it interesting that kind of you know that it's not it doesn't have to be um, in a box. Mm. You know, I don't have to tick a box. I even find with Mardi Gras, you know, they're always like, "How do you identify? You have to tick a box." And it's like I always want to put other. 
other, you know. Not, I don't want to be boxed in <laughs> by... Um, we're gonna, and, yeah, we're going to run out. We're going to run out of alphabet letters for the acronym eventually. LGBTQ. I, I like IQ. I think that's good. I, I, I Q. In, interested. Interested intersex. <laughs> I can't remember. GLBTIQ. I like the community. Okay. You know, I like yeah. that. That's just something I came up with. It doesn't seem to be no, trending I like it. yet. <laughs> no, we'll get there. We'll get there now. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I've you know, I've 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 marched in Mardi Gras. I I watched my brother grow up, and you know, knew, you know, we we knew his whole life. Like most definitely, that's that's him. You know, there's no we go to his wedding in in, uh, in October. His boyfriend's see weddings. I don't get it either. <laughs> well, he's from New Zealand. Okay. So they can get they get married over there. Okay. Um, and it kind of <laughs> makes me sad that you know he can't get married here. Um, and that makes me even sadder that today our Prime Minister said he's going to allow his people a conscience vote. So why the fuck do you want to have a fucking referendum? Just tick, it's so just, insulting. Just tick a box, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really insulting to say that, you know, we have to have this national plebiscite. Is this what, you know, yeah. do we really, do we do this to any other group of people? No. Mm. And it's just about controlling people's bodies. You know, it's all about controlling bodies yeah and um i hate that yeah <laughs> i'm um all for freedom yeah. and peace yeah so what would you say to people who are listening who might have felt that kind of oh i just want to hang out with you i just want to be with you but uh felt it doesn't feel that something feels weird about wanting to go there not because of what i think but what i'm afraid of what other people think of me don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. That's number one. <laughs> that is for sure. I mean, you know, like I worked um, for a long time on Foxtel, I was working with Showtime and, you know, and also working with ABC and working with CNN and working with all these things and you sort of feel like as a public person you have to um, toe some kind of line so that you can keep your job or whatever. But... Um, I just find the freedom of not having to worry about what anyone thinks of you just makes you such a better person, you know, and a happier person and you spread more joy around the world too. When did you figure that out? Well, you know, I met a friend and he was really crazy. Like he was six foot seven, pretty much vegan, you know, clean living guy, but was just the biggest force of nature um, and with the biggest heart that I'd ever met. And we basically, we fell in love with each other instantly, even though he was gay and I was, at the time I was going out with a guy. Anyway, we, uh, he just got me on a bicycle, <laughs> basically. And he got me dancing again, you know, because I love dancing and going out and, you know, lovely, you know, deep house music and all that sort of stuff. So he just took me out into all these great worlds that I'd been locked out of, I guess, by my own fear of or, or just not knowing anyone um, in those, those kind of um, scenes. And so, yeah, he inspired me for sure. And we knew each other for seven years and then he dropped dead. And so it was like the biggest gift of my life was having this man in it, Boomy, who, um, you know, we don't even know why he died. It's not... You know, he had an autopsy and they don't know. But I know that every time he rang up and said, what are you doing? I'd say, nothing, want to come over. And I'd always drop whatever I was doing, no matter how stressed I was about deadlines or whatever. I would always 
clear it out of the way, put the kettle on, we'd have a cup of chai and, and laugh. And so I'm so grateful for, for that and I think that's, that's what people need to do with friends because we can get so caught up in work and busyness and if you're not busy, you kind of don't exist. <laughs> you know how people say, how are you? Are you busy? As if it's something really mm. amazing and wonderful to be. Um, yeah, I just think we've got to spend our lives with the people we love and take time out of all this other stuff that really is a little bit meaningless in the end of the day. <laughs> it really is. But mm. this is that boom is one that you kind of got the idea of like, oh, this person's happy because he just doesn't give a shit. And he's so funny yeah. and I love it, you know, and he's already, you know, everywhere it was always like, let's go. And we'd just jump in the car and go on adventures and go camping here, camping there. He had a, a truck that ran on biodiesel, an old of kind of troopy, and so we'd stop at fish and chip shops and strain out the chips and just have free fuel and um, just go all over the place. And, and it was just, you know, that was living Really living. And so, and then he said, we've got to get you on a bicycle. And, you know, here I am thinking, there is no way I'm going to ride around Sydney on a bicycle. And anyway, I got on a bicycle. I got a bicycle on eBay and I was sort of wobbling around, fearful on the roads. And that was probably about, you know, 12 years ago or something. And now I just ride everywhere, all, you know, all over town, all over Sydney and, and I love that too, that feeling of freedom where you can go door to door. I've got my little office on the front, my, you know, like my little pannier with my computer and whatever and just the feeling of the wind through your hair and playing with the traffic. What could be better? You're talking my language, Schofield. <laughs> I love my bicycle. Yeah. I, I have five. I've got a tandem downstairs. Really? Oh, yeah. I brought it when I moved back from LA. I've got a, a tandem beach cruiser with uh, beer holders. Oh, I'm stop so it. I'm sober, so I don't use it. You put juice in there now. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, but, Green juice. But there's something about, there's exactly what you're saying, you know, there's something about being on a bicycle as a grown man, all right, just reminds me of like when I was eight, if I wanted to go anywhere, I had to wait for mum or dad to drive me. I was too young to take a bus by myself or anything like that, right? But then Christmas, great, eight, grade three, Christmas, got a BMX. Mm. Now could go anywhere I wanted. Complete freedom. Do whatever you like. As long as you're back by sunset. Perfect. <laughs> And I get that now. I'm, you know, 42 and I ride around and it's just the greatest. It's, and it's so, so good. And, you know, again, you know, but I'm, I'm really warped. I've spent a fair bit of time in Amsterdam. I was working there for a while. And once you go, oh, so this is how a city can work. Oh, so you actually can have everybody on bicycles, old people, young people, everyone, and there's just no fat people, <laughs> yeah. which there really aren't. <laughs> That's true. Because everyone just casually, the, the incidental exercise is just a part of their culture. Yeah, commuting. Uh, yeah. Um, what are you going for, riding for a bike? No, of course I ride a bike. Everybody rides a bike. Yeah, I love my bike. It's the best. It's the best. And I think people, like in Sydney, it's taken a while and it's still not there. I mean, I feel like part of my job as a cyclist is to train the traffic mm. because they're pretty nasty, buses, mm. taxis, cars, because they get all that shock jock. Mm. Um, the white vans too. White vans? The bloody white vans, mm. the delivery van guys. Right. And utes. Yeah, they can get a little bit close. It's like, but I'm just a cyclist. Yes, I'm a flesh please, and blood. Don't, please don't kill me. And I think they hate us also because we're so free. Yeah. They don't like to see when they're in gridlock, yeah. when we go whoo straight past yeah. them, they go, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> was, was, well, my favourite line around that is like, uh, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
So when did this idea, you know, you spoke earlier about being in a troopy with biodiesel or, you know, running a, a troopy on fish and, fish and ship shop refuse. When did the whole idea of, you know, living in a bit more of a way that is possibly less impactful start for you? I think it was probably in 1988 when I went to Antarctica. I got, I was working as a travel writer for Vogue Living and I sort of went, knock, 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 how about this? And they went, yeah. You pitched it. Off you go. You pitched the story. Yeah, I pitched the story. I had to pay quite a bit of money but it wasn't as much as yeah. the trips are, which is, you know, they're quite expensive. Did you go from Argentina? Well, the first time I went, I went from Argentina and that was amazing going down to the Antarctic Peninsula and it blew my mind. It just blew my mind because here was a place where human beings weren't. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it wasn't a natural habitat for humans. It was a natural habitat for penguins and albatross and whales and seals and it was just amazing. And, yeah, I came back from that trip and I joined every single organisation I could join, such as Greenpeace, the Wilderness Society, all the environmental orgs. And I went back down there about... Uh, you know, two years later from um, Bluff in New Zealand and that was even more insanely amazing because whereas from Chile you go across for 36 hours across the dreaded Drake Passage and then from Bluff you go for a week across the Southern Ocean to get down there and it's massive, you know, the swells are huge and, you know, plates are falling off the table and... <laughs> <laughs> But it's so exciting and so thrilling. Once you get on the boat, you sort of cut all ties with fear, really, because you're, you're, there's nothing you can do. They're really on your own, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, just seeing that place and seeing that and knowing that there are so, so many reserves of fossil fuels down there um, and there are so many interests, you know, all the countries have a slice of it. They want to claim a slice of it. Um, to exploit, really. And, I mean, the emperor penguin is the most majestic creature on the planet going and wintering over in the middle of the snow there to hatch and the males hatching their eggs. I just, I was just absolutely um, besotted by nature and the planet and everything but humans. <laughs> did, it, did it make you feel, uh, how did it make you feel about your importance as a human? Oh, well, you're just a tiny little speck, that's for sure. You know, when you're down there on the deck of the boat under the Aurora Australis, um, we actually had about four guys overboard as well um, down on that second trip. They went off to do a recce of an island to see if we could land there and it was so cold that the cable lock froze and the Zodiac was tipped over by the swell. So that happened and two guys went off and then it happened to the rescue vessel as well, the two guys in the rescue vessel. So I was in my cabin and I kind of saw this cable swing by the porthole and heard, you know, all, all hands on deck, all hands on deck. And so watching, you got watching that. you got about four minutes in that kind of water. you got about four minutes, that's true. Yeah. And so we were just watching. And when you're in a big ship, I think the boat had about 100 people on it. It's not big by our cruise ship standards. Yeah. It's a smaller sort of thing. But it takes a lot of time to turn that around. And um, finally they sent out another little dinghy and um, 
pick them up. But we were just watching these guys be hauled back into the boat like stiff, limp, wet things. And um, amazingly, they all survived because the current was five degrees warmer. But it does make you feel like a tiny speck. You know, these guys just disappeared into the ocean like that. Yeah. We're living... We're living beyond our means, you know, as a society, mm. generally, as a global society. And it's something that I'm really frightened about. And it's something that I, I when I find that I want to talk to people about it, it is such a frightening thing that people just want to shut down. They don't want to listen. But MasterChef's on. I don't want to care. How do you, through your work with solar citizens and your work across the years, how have you found what's the best way to talk with people who are, you know, who really need to hear the message? I mean, the thing about, and I'm sure you, uh, you know, have a great time with the environmental organisations, but the thing about that is like when I go to, I'm, I don't eat meat, I don't eat plant, I only eat these plants. I don't like going to vegan festivals because it's just a bunch of vegans telling each other how awesome they are. <laughs> Gives me the shits. You know, it's like how am I going to talk to mum and dad and Coles? That's what I, you know, how do we get the message there? That's where it matters. Yeah. So how, what have you learned about talking to people that are otherwise too afraid to hear what you have to say? It's, it's really hard to talk about this. I mean, I did the Climate Reality Project with Al Gore in 2007. So basically what that was was we got the slideshow from An Inconvenient Truth and we went around the country and we did presentations one-on-ones yeah. because after being you know, vice president of the United States, he went back to his slideshow because he thought that the one-on-one conversation was the most powerful thing to do. So yeah. that's why we were all trained up to do that. But, geez, they were hard presentations because no one wanted to hear that stuff. No one wanted to and, – and really it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that if you keep pumping all the pollution into the air, all the carbon into the air, uh, it's like a doona. The whole planet is going to get hotter, you know. Um, but people want to pick it apart and, you know, say, but, you know, there was a volcano here and back in the, but there was a rainstorm over there. They don't understand the big picture of it's the globe. It's a global system. Yeah, yeah they, they, they see it as, uh, you know, we had rains back here, you know, 40 years ago like this. or So it's a hard one. I think the best thing to do is if you can use humour. Because people always respond to that. But it's a hard thing to be funny about, you know. Yeah. And I guess in that Al Gore slideshow you've got, you know, that science experiment where he has the little frog in a beaker. Mm. And I I, I kind of remember doing this at Sydney Girls High, I think. We had a frog in a beaker and we turned it up and if the water gradually heats up, the frog won't understand to get out because it, it acclimatizes as a cold-blooded animal it acclimatizes its system to the surrounding temperature and then eventually just pops <laughs> just dies yeah. but if you plop a frog into a boiling beaker it jumps right out yeah so i think we're in that sort of situation where people go oh it's such a beautiful day i always think oh my god it's bloody too hot for winter you know so i find myself feeling like very pessimistic a lot of the time but i just try and have as much fun as I can as I'm doing things, create events for people to come to that are fun and, you know, like this, you know, capture the sun competition, something that's 
that's fun for people to engage with and the message of why we're actually doing all this is a little bit subtler yeah. underneath that so so people can go, oh, yeah, I get it, I get it, okay, wow, enough sun falls on our planet every hour to power the world for a full year. So if that little message starts to come through and people think, yeah, yeah I might uh, investigate solar for my caravan <laughs> yeah. or my flat or whatever. But why do you why do you care? You could have kept, you know, talking about movies. You could have kept, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. I just love nature. You know, I love nature so much. I've got a place in the bush and, you know, I always go camping and swagging out around Australia and I just love it, you know. It's so inspiring to me. And when I look up at all those stars at night and see them shoot by and, you know, see the whales go by, it's just just. It's something so precious that we're here on this habitat of ours. It's so, it's so inspiring itself. Yeah, I could have just kept doing stuff and making money and paid off my mortgage or whatever, but um, I'm so happy doing what I really care about, you know. I've always, you know, since back in the 80s, I've always, that, that's been my passion. I've always been, but people, I remember when I went and auditioned for um, ABC, the review show, which was an art show. I went in there and I think they dismissed me because I was too much of a greenie. And then, you know, like. Too greenie for the ABC? I know, amazing, (laughs) amazing. It's like, she doesn't know, you know, she's just just too green. Anyway, I finally got the job because they couldn't find anyone else, I guess. But, yeah, it's always been. It's always been the thing that I love doing. And, and like you say, I've found my people. Right. Yeah. The, the thing that, I mean, I guess I would ask what's starting to, I see now, you can talk until the cows come home about, yes, cholera washed away. Yes, it's because of climate change. Yes, you voted against it. No, it doesn't make sense to you? Oh, okay, okay, let's start again. <laughs> you know, um, versus... We are a country so blessed with sun and wind. We could be, you know, the clean energy, as Will Anderson says, we could be the catter of clean energy if we wanted. We could run the world with the research and development if we wanted. It could be all ours. And guess who could make? We'll have so much money. So much money. (laughs) And, you know, I see it really in this very simple term that... We as taxpayers spend $7.7 billion a year propping up the fossil fuel industry. Now, if we just made a decision that that is like last century and the century before, and this century is about renewables, and we put that money into funding big solar, big wind, community powerhouses, all sorts of renewable projects we would have the future that we want for all of our children and for ourselves. It's just a couple of dirty old coal-loving creeps who want to keep yeah. us back in the dark ages. And we've really got a, you know, we've got an opportunity to shift this around, you know, next weekend. <laughs> I don't know whether this is going to go to No, air. I'll pop it out before the election. Don't worry. That's all part of the plan of having you here. It's <laughs> okay. fine. Right. Well, um, we have this opportunity. Now, in Wentworth, we have the second lowest uptake of solar in Australia which is, you know, our electorate. We're sitting in this electorate right now. We're sitting in this electorate. Malcolm Turnbull's electorate. Malcolm Turnbull's the Prime Minister of our country. That's right. Six years ago he was saying we've got to shift away as fast as possible from fossil fuels and we've got to move to renewables. And he said this just like this litany of things he was saying six years ago and now 
they don't have a policy post-2020 on renewables. So that's four years away. And other parties have policies of 50%. That's Labor. I think the Greens have 90%. We as solar citizens are pushing for 100% by 2030. But, you know, it's just not good enough not to be not to be preparing for our children's future, for, for the next generations, to be grabbing it all now and not leaving anything for the future because what we are really leaving them is a parched earth and that just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be born into a parched earth. No, no, not at all. And, I, you know, when I think about it, if I recall, you know, it's like they would – Get on the radio or write in the newspaper that, you know, we need, we're doing conscription so your children don't have to live under fascism. You know, we're going to war so your kids can live free. Yeah. Why in the fuck are we giving $7.7 billion to an industry that will keep our kids, well, 100 miles inland because that's where the beach is now? And, uh, and, you know, without water here on the driest inhabited yeah, continent, yeah. you know, I mean, we should be valuing water above coal. Instead, we're just washing coal with our precious water resources. 7.7 billion? Now, okay, so let's talk about the, what are the common arguments. Let's, you know, pop them out like we do candles. Okay, so <laughs> $7.7 billion. What about all those jobs now? What about my oven? That's like a big <laughs> argument. People think they're going to lose a job and they're going to lose their oven. Now, if those 50,000 abandoned mines across Australia were rehabilitated, you could have jobs in perpetuity. So I know it's not as sexy as driving a huge big truck and gouging out the bowels of the earth, but putting a little bit back and maybe planting a tree or something. You know, if we, if we pay those guys the same amount of money, and it really should be and is in a lot of these licenses when coal companies get licenses to dig these huge mines there is a bond set aside for rehabilitation now these companies like bhp poor bhp whatever the company is rio tinto they go broke before they can do this work oops daisy ah it's really sad we just took everything out and made all the money we can't fix that hole but we'll sell it to you for a dollar and you can have the problem so that's what they do in the hunter valley the beautiful hunter valley there's like gonna be i think it's 26 final voids, they call them, final voids. These are 360-metre holes in the ground that run for about 15 k's. And so what happens to these holes right beside the Hunter River? They fill up with water eventually, but because all this, this, this earth that's supposed to be underground is exposed, it leaches out all these toxins and that then leaches out into the waterways. So, you know, like... The Wollombi Brook doesn't have any fish in anymore. I was talking to an Aboriginal guy who said we grew up and the fish was broiling, roiling with, uh, with fish. And then they're not there anymore. But up above the mines, you still get nice clean water. And these companies are allowed to do this to our beautiful environment and get away scot-free. It's just, it makes me cray-cray. With our money? <laughs> with our money. With our money. We're propping them up. It's such a good deal for these. How does the propping up part work? For folks who don't quite understand that, well, me is one of them. You've heard of political donations. I have. Well, there's a lot of money that goes from these companies to the major parties. It's like, mate, we're going to give you X amount of jobs or we'll give you some money and, you know, you give us the licence to this mine. 
So I've got my place in the country was one of the 11 licenses that was handed out by Ian McDonald when he was New South Wales Minister for Resources. He also handed out the one to Eddie O'Bead's over Eddie O'Bead's property out at um, Bylong. So, you know, there's a lot of dirty politics going on. If you just look right now at the Premier of New South Wales, Mike Baird's former Chief of Staff, is currently the head of the New South Wales Minerals Councils. Now, if that's not too close, <laughs> I don't know what is. Right. But, um, yeah, basically it's just this amazing rock. Did you see that um, commercial that the Minerals Council put out? It's just so ridiculous. It's, this is an amazing rock. This rock can do this, this and this. You know, it's just... It's this, a piece of coal? It's a piece of coal. Oh, and, yeah, this little rock can kill the planet. <laughs> yeah. So but the so the subsidies, where does the subsidy part come into the business model? What where where would why do they need the 7.7 billion dollars? Oh, they need diesel rebates for their trucks. Oh. You know, they need they need because they're giving jobs, they need money back. It's this oh, it's this false economy that actually does not stack up and now that the coal prices globally are plummeting yeah. because the rest of the world is cotton on yeah. that uh, renewables that, are the future. I think that's almost like free power in Chile at the moment. Yes, exactly. It's free. And I think they're, they're charging their cars in, is it Norway? They plug in and they get free power for their cars because they've got hydro and they've got wind yeah. and solar. Yeah. It's all right. It's okay, Frankie. You're about to meet Gigi. Oh, good. Yeah. Come on in. Hey, Gigi. Hi. Hi. Give us, for, for people who are listening, who are yep. really sceptical, for people who are like, why would you want to change anything? People who are super sceptical, what, because I've been exploring this myself, you know, there's a, there's a business, there's a few businesses in Australia that do it, that take, um, you know, just regular Aussies who have a solar panel on the roof um, taking their excess power and selling it as a carbon credit on the open market. You know, there's ways that even you in your suburb with your solar panel on your roof can participate in a global carbon trading economy, which blows my mind, completely <laughs> blows my mind. Like these are the kind of economic, you know, arguments I think personally that'll get – do you need to get that? No. You sure? Yeah. Okay. I'll just go something like message. Sorry, I can't talk right now. No, no, that's okay. Yeah. And, like, these are the kind of, for me, these are the economic arguments that will get even your most... Yeah. You know, how far away are we from it, in your opinion? How far are we, are, are, away are we from it being so economically un undeniable to make the switch to solar and wind? I think we're here. Yeah. I think we're absolutely here. I mean, if you look at, you know, what we will have to pay if we continue business as usual in terms of damage mm. to our cities our foreshores, you know, mm. um, insurance. The insurance companies totally get it, you know. Oh, they, they knew it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. They knew it in the 70s. And they're like, whoa, we have a problem. Have Houston. you read Merchants of Doubt? No. Oh, it's about how the oil companies and the tobacco companies 100%, 100% knew. Mm. It was actually a consortium in 1948. It was the first meeting between the oil companies in the States oh. and they got told by their chief scientists this is going to be bad. And they, I'm not even making this up, it's horrific to read, but there's minutes of a meeting that say what we're going to do is we're going to obfuscate this data. Mm. 1948. Well, that is early. Exxon did it in the, was it the 70s? Yeah. Exxon did it in the 70s yeah. or 80s? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is criminal behaviour by major corporations. Yeah, but they're rich white dudes, so they'll never have a problem now. Well, they will because they'll die and go to hell and burn. Well, this is the part I don't get. Do they not also live? Well, they do live. The thing in I this don't planet get, that I live in? They do. The thing I don't get about it is that these people have children yeah. and grandchildren yeah. and they don't care about their future, yeah. which I think is really crap. I wouldn't go to that grandpa's Christmas party <laughs> if I was their grandchild. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So... Yeah, I just think um, the more we can do to snap people out of this daze they're in, and I think there's all sorts of things that are distracting them from the reality mm. and their, you know, telly shows and, mm. you know, advertising and whatever the newspaper or those kind of glossy magazines are that I can't bear to look at with yeah. spin stories about people that they've just made up, <laughs> you know, and that people think are their best friends and, yeah. you know, so there's so many distractions people just... Don't want to hear the truth. Um, and they, I think what we have to do is just make it fun for them to engage in yeah. the truth, you know, and to, to be the change they want to see, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but you, can't, you really can't make a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be made in... in it's like the yes. money or the planet. Yeah. <laughs> the money. No, but you can make a lot of money. Like oh, in renewables. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's billions, sure. to, there's billions to be made in saving the world. Billions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, get on board, kids. It's not, it's not that hard. I mean, even if we took 10% of that 7.7 billion. Yeah. Just 10% of that. Mm. And, oh. Let's take it all. I just think take it all. Let's go cold turkey. But it's like your ship down at Antarctica. We're on a very big ship but with a very small rudder. You can't – and this is what hurts me. It's like I, want, I, I see it and I want it all to change in a hurry and mm. the pain I experience in my heart is the pain between what I see and what is happening, all right? Mm. And I have to be in acceptance that – it's going to happen very slowly and it might not happen while I'm alive and that's got, I've got to be okay with that. I'd love it to change faster. Yeah, you've got to be okay with it because otherwise you'll just beat yourself up into a pulp. Um, yeah. Oh, I've done that, don't worry. Mm, <laughs> There's yeah. Been, Audrey's had to peel me off the ground a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Get up. She, she really has. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean there's... We're privileged. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, we in Australia are really privileged. We're among the richest countries on earth. We can actually take a little cut. I think it's something like a latte a week might do it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to actually turn that ship around a little bit faster. But if everyone got on board, yeah. and I think that's the great thing about people power, you know, when you really do see yeah. a movement of people rise up yeah. and say, hang on, guys, you know, We've got to turn this ship around. Mm. That's really powerful. Where That's the see, only thing that changes anything. Where do you see anything. the big break? Where do you see, is, it, is it going to be in photovoltaic cells reaching a certain percentage? Is it going to be in battery capacity? Where's the big break coming from? I think it's battery. I mean, yeah. I think the Tesla battery is an amazing thing and I think mm. it's the game changer. Um, people always talk about, you know, base load. We've got to have base load. But actually if we localise our energy sources rather than bring them in from the Hunter Valley or, mm. you know, out near Mudgee, wherever they are, which wastes 10% of the energy anyway. And we're not, we're using very inefficient um, systems to get the amount of energy in that amazing little black rock out of it. You know, we waste probably about 50% at least of that rock. So I think, you know, it's all just there. The, the innovation is there. There's so much great stuff going on. There's a place up at... Um, 
Glenn Innocent there capturing all the well, I don't want to talk about meat, but you know, all that kind Fine. of bio the material. Biomass, yeah. The bio the waste from the yeah. and things, yeah. So it's like biogeneration mm. and it's just Right, if a cow's dead anyway, you make as much as you can. <laughs> yeah, if don't waste if anything. It's gonna de- if, look, if it's gonna decompose and cause those decomposition gases anyway, you may as well try and reclaim yeah. some of that. And there's a building in Sydney that's actually harvesting the sewage. So it's going down into the sewer and getting the methane from the sewer to to um, power the building. So these things are all here and if we can make it local rather than huge, big systems. But if you make it local, then you're not depending on a centralised government to control everything now. Am I a socialist? No, what? Am I? I don't know what. I think I'm just a hippie. I think I'm just an old hippie from way back. See? That's the interesting part. (laughs) Well, I certainly think we're over-government in Australia. We have three tiers of government and that's ridiculous. That's more than any other country and... I like local government myself because it's the tier closest to the people and I think we could lose the state government because all it ever does is give people licences to dig up huge holes all over the place and sell our farms, sell our best country. (laughs) You know, like the Liverpool Plains, I was out there the other day. This is the richest, the second richest land on earth after some spot in the Ukraine. It's just this magic plot of land. It goes for about, I think it's 140 k's across. Um, Anyway, they want to dig it up and make a huge coal mine, two big coal mines, and then they want to double frack it as well and get some coal seam gas out of it. So, I mean, that makes sense. No one wants to be double fracked. <laughs> oh, double fracked hurts. Take me to dinner first. <laughs> um, I, better let, I better let you go. You've been here for a long time. Um, but I do want to ask you, um, you know, considering the, 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 the life that you live and the life that you've had and the, the amount of women that have looked up to you, certainly through the surprise and things, You've met Gigi, she just came from home from school. What words of advice would you have for young Gigi as she moves forward? Paddle out. <laughs> Be fearless. <laughs> Be fearless. I mean, there are sharks out there, but the chance of getting bitten by one is very, very slim. I think it's you're more likely to die of a vending machine, a drink men- vending machine landing on you than a shark bite. So be fearless, be brave and have fun. Yeah. And be free. Love it, Nell. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Osha. Great to talk to you. Fun. I'm going to take your photo real quick, okay? Okay. Sweet. Thanks. And that was Nell Schofield. You can follow her on Twitter at Nellavision, N-E-L-L-E-V-I-S-I-O-N. Uh, find out more about the work she's doing with Solar Citizens at solarcitizens.org.au. Happy voting. I'm going to do everything in my power to be at the North Curl Curl Primary School voting uh, booth to go and help out Jimbo next week. So uh, if you're in the area, come and say hi. Vote one Jimbo. Um, It'll be heaps of fun. Um, Until next week, listen to your doctor. (laughs) If your partner's telling you you're cranky, you probably are. Talk to your dog. Vote for the future. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. I love you. Thank you for all the support. Have a great week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com